Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Tapson. I'm going to try something a little different today. No guest, no long-form monologue on my part about a single issue. Instead, this episode is going to be just a kind of a grab bag of a few topics in the news that I feel compelled to address. Now, as you listen to this, I will be wrapping up a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. That's right. I will have left a week or so ago from Los Angeles along with my two older daughters who are 13 and 10, and we joined a pretty large church group for a 10-day journey to the land of the Bible. So I pre-recorded this to keep the continuity going, and I'll be back with another podcast next week most likely with a new guest. Stay tuned for that. So in terms of the grab bag of items in the news that I'm going to talk about, they will necessarily be a couple of weeks outdated by the time you hear this. But my focus isn't going to be so much on the news event itself as it is the larger ongoing issue that underlies the news items. So it won't be entirely as if I'm just ranting about old news. But first, the pilgrimage. Perhaps some or many of you have visited Israel at some point, but this is my first time. As old as I am, this is the first time that the time has been right for me to travel there, and I wanted to take my two older daughters, who even at their young age are pretty experienced travelers, with me. That's one of the advantages and benefits of homeschooling, is that you get to turn trips like this into a sort of a grand-scale field trip in which your kids get to learn firsthand about history and art and architecture and geography And they get to experience traveling, which, as the writer Sinclair Lewis famously noted, is so broadening. And so we are setting out together to make this pilgrimage to the Holy Land as a learning experience, yes, but hopefully a spiritual experience. And why am I calling it a pilgrimage and not just a trip or a vacation? Well, the difference, of course, is in your intention and your focus. The word pilgrim derives from a word meaning foreigner or stranger, And as I'm sure you know, it refers to someone traveling to a sacred place for the purposes of spiritual growth or worship or even penance. When you're a pilgrim, you're not a tourist. You're doing more than just snapping photos or hitting up gift shops, although you might be doing those things too. But in theory, on a pilgrimage, you should be conscious of journeying not only out of your physical home, out of your comfort zone, out of familiar surroundings, but journeying out of yourself as well in an effort to connect your soul more closely to God in a sacred site or landscape. The purpose of Christian pilgrimage was summarized in this way by Pope Benedict XVI. He said, To go on pilgrimage is not simply to visit a place to admire its treasures of nature, art, or history. To go on pilgrimage really means to step out of ourselves in order to encounter God where he has revealed himself, where his grace has shone with particular splendor and produced rich fruits of conversion and holiness among those who believe, unquote. And surely God has revealed himself nowhere more literally and physically than in the Holy Land itself. Now, I've spoken to people who have traveled there before, and most say that it's an amazing experience, But some say it was disappointing in a spiritual sense in that while the Holy Land was fascinating historically and geographically and archaeologically, they didn't feel the presence of the Lord in the way they had hoped to or expected to. 
Maybe they had hoped or expected to have a sort of a mystical experience as they walked in the footsteps of Abraham or David or Jesus. So I suppose it depends on the person and his or her state of spiritual receptiveness. But I confess I'm hoping and wondering whether I will feel that presence there myself. I read recently something that the author Rod Dreher wrote, which I thought was meaningful. It may not have originated with him, but he said something to the effect that if you have some sense as you live your life that there is a home that we will return to at the end, then your life is a pilgrimage. And if you don't have that sense that as you live your life, your soul has a home that it longs to be reunited with, then your life won't be a pilgrimage, but instead just a sort of aimless, fruitless wandering. I don't think any of us wants to reach the end of our lives, look back upon it and realize too late that it's all been just a passing through, that we were just adrift and directionless. That's one of the reasons I'm going to be thoroughly documenting the trip in writing and in video, is to share the impact that this pilgrimage hopefully will have on my life and on my spiritual growth and on that of my children. Either way, I'll be posting about it hopefully at frontpagemag.com and certainly on my Substack page, which is marktapson.substack.com. I've also been asked to write about the experience for my filmmaker friend Gloria Greenfield's deep dive blog at docimmitproductions.com, but I'll pass on more details about that when the time comes. It might sound a little narcissistic to be publishing about my religious experience traveling, and uh, obviously unless I have some insights worth sharing, I won't bother. But hopefully what I will be sharing will be meaningful enough that it may even impact you in some way as well, and maybe in an unexpected way. So we shall see. Okay, now on to the news. First, I want to talk about an item in the news that reflects the ongoing threat in the Western world to our freedom of speech. Now, this is in Ireland, but it's symptomatic of Western countries more generally, and we will be facing it here in the United States soon enough. As of this recording, there is impending hate speech legislation before the Irish Senate, which Green Party chairwoman Pauline O'Reilly admitted is about, quote, restricting freedom for the common good, unquote. Senator O'Reilly said, quote, when one thinks about it, all law and all legislation is about the restriction of freedom. This is exactly what we are doing here. We are restricting freedom, but we are doing it for the common good. Throughout our Constitution, she added, one can see that while one has rights, they are restricted for the common good. Everything needs to be balanced, unquote. Yes, laws restrict people from doing anything and everything they want. But where she went off the rails comes next. She declared, quote, If a person's views on other people's identities make their lives unsafe and insecure and cause them such deep discomfort that they cannot live in peace, our job as legislators is to restrict those freedoms for the common good, unquote. Did you catch that? If your views about other people's so-called identities make those people feel insecure or cause them deep discomfort, then you should be charged with breaking the law. She went on to say, Social media has fueled hatred, but it has also put on display for all of us the dirty, filthy underbelly of hatred in Irish society, unquote. Wow, sounds like she doesn't like her fellow Irishmen very much. But anyway, this criminal justice, incitement to violence or hatred and hate offenses bill, 
which is currently being debated by Irish lawmakers, would criminalize large swaths of speech, including, quote, incitement to violence or hatred against people with protected characteristics, unquote, as well as condoning, denying, or grossly trivializing genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and crimes against peace. Well, first of all, there should be no such thing as people with protected characteristics. Everyone should have the same rights. Second, although trivializing crimes against humanity may be reprehensible or in poor taste, it shouldn't be a crime, nor should there be something called, quote, a crime against peace, unquote. If all it takes to break the law in Ireland is to disturb someone's personal tranquility, then everyone in Ireland is going to jail. The hate speech law would also allow the government to jail citizens merely for possessing supposedly offensive material. Anyone found in possession of so-called hateful material would be subject to up to a year in prison. That means if I'm in Ireland and I'm found in possession of a copy of, say, Ryan Anderson's controversial book about transgenderism called When Harry Became Sally, a book, by the way, that Amazon refuses to carry, or if I have a DVD of a Dinesh D'Souza documentary about how great America is, there's a whole mob of people who would be deeply triggered by that and who would consider it hate speech. I could go to jail for a year for that. Speaking against the bill, Senator Ronan Mullen warned that the legislation would be used as a weapon to target political dissent. Gee, do you think? He said, quote, we are in a society dominated by cancel culture where people are frequently accused of being haters for expressing points of view that are not hate, but simply robust expressions of opinion. He went on to say, Freedom of expression is a fundamental human right. Without it, there is no free exchange of ideas at all levels within society. In short, there is no democracy. That is why we use the term fundamental. Well, this is the inevitable result of the normalization over the years of this concept of hate speech, which has been weaponized in the service of totalitarians to push back against our freedom of speech and declare certain opinions and worldviews illegal. Notice how the left has never once labeled a leftist position or statement as hate speech. Never once. It's always and everywhere used to bludgeon conservatives into silence. Object to the transmutilation of children? That's hate speech. Object to the sexualization of children? Hate speech. Object to the left's racist indoctrination in schools? That's hate speech, too. Calling conservatives Nazis and fascists? Not hate speech. See how that works? Okay, on to the next item in the news, the IRS laying the groundwork for seizing the firearms of legal gun owners. Montana Attorney General Austin Knudsen told Breitbart News recently that armed IRS agents, did you catch that? Armed IRS agents rolled into Great Falls' Highwood Creek Outfitters prior to regular business hours and seized dozens of boxes of ATF Forms 4473, which, of course, is the background check form that's containing information on gun purchasers. The ATF Form 4473 has a gun purchaser's name, address, birth date, state, city of birth, gender, uh, social security number, and the serial number of any guns purchased in the store. The information is perfectly suited for use in a registry or registry database. The store owner, Tom Van Hoos, said, 
quote, at 7.30, I came in and they pulled in behind me with 20 heavily armed agents, unquote. By the time it was all over with, the agents left him with about 30 minutes of time left to do business in the day, so he lost an entire business day. Van Hoos believes his store was targeted because he sells guns that the White House opposes. Quote, I can only assume that it's because of the style of weapons that we have and the press that's so against them. The current administration seems to be hell-bent on getting these guns out of the hands of average Americans, unquote. Yes, they certainly do. The danger of federal agents taking this information was not lost on Attorney General Knudsen, who told Breitbart News, quote, This is extremely concerning because it seemingly exceeds the search warrant, which limited the scope of the search to financial records. These are not financial records. They're records of lawful firearm purchases. What the hell does the IRS need with 4473s? We know the ATF in Washington, D.C. is trying to scoop up as many of these purchase records as possible, and that's what it looks like they're trying to do here, unquote. Um, that attorney general added, there's a clear and disturbing pattern developing of the Biden administration sending federal agents to harass American gun owners, shops, and manufacturers. He also noted that this harassment is happening at the same time that Biden is pushing to repeal the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, the PLCAA, thereby opening up gun makers to lawsuits over the illegal use of firearms. The Attorney General Newton said Biden wants to repeal PLCAA so they can shut down gun companies and coerce states to implement red flag laws so that firearms can be seized without due process. Now they're sending federal agents door-to-door -door in my state to intimidate people. There's no question about it. This is the most anti-gun administration in the nation's history, unquote. He's right about that. And clearly the Biden administration has been weaponizing the IRS, just like it has weaponized every other governmental agency against American citizens. And I mean literally weaponized. A report last month from the watchdog group Open the Books shows that the Internal Revenue Service has been stocking up on $10 million worth of weapons, ammunition, and combat gear since 2020. In 2021 alone, the IRS spent more than $5 million shoring up its arsenal. Since 2020, the IRS has spent $2.3 million on ammo, $1.2 million on ballistic shields, $474,000 on Smith & Wesson rifles, $463,000 on Beretta tactical shotguns, and $243,000 on body armor vests. There were also other expenditures, including a mysterious $1.3 million spent on, quote, various other gear for criminal investigation agents, unquote. The agency also loaded up on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of tactical lighting, gear bags, holsters, ballistic helmets, and optic sights for weapons since the pandemic. Even before 2020, the IRS had stockpiled 5 million rounds of ammunition for its 2,159 special agents. At that time, the agency owned 4,500 firearms, including 621 pump-action and semi-automatic shotguns, 539 semi-automatic rifles, and 15 submachine guns. The IRS is also in the midst of a hiring spree with current openings to hire 360 criminal investigators based in all 50 states. Applicants must be willing, quote, 
to carry a firearm, must be prepared to protect him or herself or others from physical attacks at any time and without warning, and to use firearms in life-threatening situations, and must be willing to use force up to and including the use of deadly force, unquote. To collect taxes? Alleged President Biden provided the agency with more than $80 billion in new funding, partly to hire nearly 87,000 new employees over the next 10 years. And if you don't think that tens of thousands of those new employees are going to be carrying out similar door-to-door seizures of information on law-abiding gun owners across the country, then you are simply not paying attention. And the end game is disarming not criminals, not criminal gangs, but law-abiding American patriots who have been granted the God-given right to self-defense against a tyrannical government. All right, last, but certainly not least, let's examine another outrageous item in the news, and that's the ACLU's grotesque defense of a murdering rapist put to death recently in the state of Florida. Dwayne Owen, one of the longest-held inmates on Florida's death row, was found guilty of two separate killings in 1984, a hammer attack on a 38-year-old mother of two and the fatal stabbing of a 14-year-old babysitter as two children in her care were asleep. Both of those women, or I should say the woman and the, the child, were raped. He also attacked two other women who survived. A biological male Owen claimed that he identified as a woman and wanted to be housed in a women's prison. Gee, do you think that might be because, as a violent rapist, he wanted to be around more potential victims in a captive space? But while Owen's lawyers argued insanity, psychiatrists for the state testified that Owen faked schizophrenia and he had no signs of gender dysphoria. His records indicated instead that he exhibits sexual sadism. Following his much-deserved recent execution, the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, published a jaw-dropping social media post lamenting that Owen underwent, quote, enormous suffering, unquote, after being denied state-provided transgender surgery prior to being executed. This was their message, quote, the state of Florida never provided medically necessary gender-affirming care to Duane Owen, causing her enormous suffering and violating her right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment for the more than 30 years she was in state custody. Unquote. That's the message from the far-left non-profit, non-profit, the ACLU, which is partially funded by billionaire George Soros, unsurprisingly. In a follow-up tweet, the ACLU condemned the, quote, racist, unquote, death penalty, as well as Owen's right to become, quote, who she was meant to be, unquote, while alive. In legal papers she drafted, Owen wrote that she should be accorded the essence of human dignity and be allowed to become who she was meant to be before her death, the ACLU's tweet reads, No one should be killed by the state, it continues. The time to end the racist, unfair, and cruel death penalty is now, unquote. Okay, well, these just amazingly grotesque tweets were later hit with Twitter's Community Notes fact-checking feature, which allows users to add some relevant context, highlighting the fact that Duane Owen 
murdered and raped both a 14-year-old girl and a 38-year-old mother. The ACLU is run by sociopaths, tweeted writer and podcaster Megan Murphy. Radio host Jason Rance wrote, Y'all are evil. And essayist Wesley Yang wrote, quote, The ACLU is working tirelessly to ensure that a delusional echo chamber in which the suffering of a male serial rapist and murderer of women denied medically necessary gender-affirming care takes priority over his victims, encompasses the world and is mandated by law. Unquote. Comedian Tim Young wrote, The ACLU uses their donor money to advocate for sex changes for child rapists and murderers now. Shame on them and anyone who funds them. And uh, Turning Point USA founder Charlie Kirk tweeted, quote, The ACLU is upset because the state of Florida executed Dwayne Owen without ever, without ever providing her with medically necessary sex change treatments. Dwayne Owen raped and murdered two people, including a child. Unquote. And last but not least, conservative journalist Ian Miles Chong wrote, A certain group of loud, obnoxious, and sexually deviant activists are more upset about the execution of Duane Owen than they are about what he did to Karen Slattery. Let that sink in. Even some on the leftist side of the political aisle slammed that tweet from the ACLU. Quote, I'm as liberal as you can get, but this ain't it, ACLU, wrote one Twitter user. The ACLU's defense stems from the Marxist worldview that the real victims of crime aren't the women who got raped and murdered, but the criminal himself who was victimized by an oppressive society. You see, the left doesn't care about people. In other words, as individuals, they care only about the people, this abstract collective of humanity. Because they view everything through the distorted lens of class and gender and race, they reject the common-sense understanding that one's sympathy and compassion should be reserved for the victim of a crime and those impacted by it, not for the perpetrator of the crime. This is why the left is pro-crime and why society collapses into chaos whenever and wherever the left is in charge. They reject law and order and embrace social upheaval because their aim is the destruction of society as we know it. The only crimes and criminals they recognize are crimes against peace by white people, like free speech or armed self-defense, or denying that a man can become a woman simply by declaring it so. The left is the party of chaos and disorder, of lies and delusion, of the abuse of power and of totalitarian control of the people. They are at war with civilization, make no mistake. So put on the full armor of God and act accordingly. Okay, just wanted to get that off my chest, so thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Thanks for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take. And remember, if you like what you hear, please leave a review. It really helps, and you will have my eternal gratitude. See you next time. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.